listener. Hi, and welcome to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Broadsheet's Editorial Director, Katja Vaktel, and the host of this Guide to Melbourne. I'm so excited to speak with today's guests. Acme's Britt Romstad is here to talk about the museum's blockbuster new exhibition, and Nick Coulter is joining us to chat about his new bar in Windsor. Nick owns Neptune Food and Wine in Windsor, which has been packed since the day it opened in 2017, and he hasn't gone far for his next project, just a few doors up, in fact. Nick, welcome to Around Town. No worries. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your new bar, Young Hearts. Well, yeah, it's just two doors up from Neptune. And it's a, a place that I used to frequent quite a bit. And they closed up in probably August, September last year. Towards the start of this year, January, we had an opportunity to jump in. And yeah, we just thought it was a great space and would love to give it another another rebirth. I've spent a lot of time at Neptune and a lot of time at Galar, which is the former bar that you've moved into. Uh-huh. How would you describe to those you know visiting the area what, why might they go to Young Hearts maybe versus Neptune? I think it's always interesting for people to hear about the different personalities of, of the places. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the venues always did complement each other, even when I wasn't owner of both of them. To continue that on, jump on board. Young Hearts is more of a space where you might go before, have a cocktail, head to Neptune, have dinner, and then perhaps head back or head across the road to another restaurant, kick on after. Um, yeah, it's just a bit more of a, a diverse space, um, definitely more drinks focused, although we do have. Um, Freddie's in the kitchen doing all our snacks, which will be kind of a six-month rotating kitchen. Yeah, Neptune's more focused on wines. Um, Young Heart's more focused on on cocktails and spirits. Let's talk about the food. We'll start with the kitchen takeovers um, that you just mentioned. So Freddie's is in there now. Is that ongoing? How long will they be there? In our story, uh, yeah, it's mentioned that, you know, you might find different food and drink offerings as you kind of visit the bar over different months. You know, the kitchen was something that, not that we didn't want to, operate the kitchen. We just thought it was a good opportunity to get local guys in, friends in, um, keep the space active. So yeah, they're not doing pizza. They're doing more Italian bar snacks. Um, and the brief for them was basically just stuff you can eat with your hands. You know, we don't want people whipping out knives and forks, going into steaks and parmas and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, if you find you've been drinking there for an hour or so, you're a bit snacky, you can grab something to, to keep going. What are the snacks on there that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, so the uh, the sandos are proving pretty popular. Um, so chicken cotoletta and then also an eggplant version, which is good for me being vegetarian. Um, well, the ketchup peppy croquettes have been popular. And then, yeah, just, you know, your classic your cured meats and, and veg and so forth. Perfect for, for drinks, for matching with drinks. Yes. Let's talk about the drinks. You've got slushies on tap. You've got some limoncello. Tell us about uh, what people can expect on the drinks and cocktail menu. Yeah, so the cocktail list, um, we've got a you know a list of six signatures, which are our our creation, um, and you know it's less is more kind of philosophy. We're not going into um, you know foams and smokes and all that kind of so forth. It's just focused on really good quality booze, um, and then we have our interpretation of all the classics. Um, you know, margaritas are obviously super popular at the moment. Espresso martinis, our version of that. Wine wise, again, a short, sharp list, um, really on kind of lo-fi wines. Use as many local producers as we can. And tell us about these slushies. So the uh, guys from Freddy's actually started their own Lemoncello brand. Um, so it's a little offshoot for them. So we thought, why not get that on tap as well? So they're producing, um, it's called a scrapino and it's like a dessert. So it's kind of like a lime splice, semi-frozen Lemoncello alcoholic slushie. A nice little palate cleanser to finish. You've got DJs who are going to be also rotating through the space as well. And you've described 
basically how different nights will will feel will feel very different. So Wednesday is, you know, more of a chilled date night. Yep. Thursdays you've got live music with some jazz and instrumental. And then Friday through Sunday is DJs. Why was it important to you to have some live music in the space? Obviously the, the previous uh, owners did have live music on Thursdays and something we, we thought that was good to continue on. Something you don't really get this side of the river too often. Um, and I was actually at the Rooks Return last night checking out a band and the vibe there was awesome. And I was just saying to my partner, this is something you just wouldn't get on Chapel Street. Um, so something they're excited to kind of launch in a couple of weeks. And the bar is licensed until 1am on the weekends as well. So you can stay quite late. Yeah. Downstairs, uh, where there used to be a bottle shop, it's now a gallery space. Yeah, for sure. So we wanted to share it with as many people as possible, um, whether it's, you know, guys in the kitchen or DJs and bands coming through and also artists just giving them a space um, to showcase their work. So I've got a resident coming in uh, end of this week, actually. And as I said, it's a really open format to whatever works for, for the artist. So Cassidy Jackson's her name. She sent down four pieces, which are going to get displayed downstairs and potentially some more along the way. Showcase them for, you know, about eight weeks or so. They're all for sale. And yeah, it's just a mutually beneficial transaction for her and for us. So it's quite a small space, maybe three by three meters. Um, and you walk in off the street and then you head up, head on upstairs. So everyone that comes to the venue has to walk through, through that space. Okay, great. The hours of Young Hearts are Wednesday to Friday, 5pm until 1am. And on Saturday and Sunday, it's 2pm until 1am. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thank you. A new blockbuster exhibition at Acme shines the spotlight on celebrated and influential women throughout film history, from Hollywood's silent era to Bollywood blockbusters to cult classics, even to new releases. This is a show that's all about femme fatales, reluctant heroines, action stars, and more. Acme's Britt Romstad joins us now to chat about the highlights. Welcome, Britt. Hello. I'm, I'm not quite sure where I should begin. Do we start with behind-the-scenes Polaroids from Thelma and Louise or costumes that were worn by Marilyn Monroe or Marlene Dietrich? I mean, it's, it's an exhibition that spans 120 years, so there is a lot in it. Yeah, we've got some incredible costumes in there, um, more than 25 costumes. Um, we have props from movies, uh, posters, photos, sketches. And of course, being Melbourne, we have a range of big screen projections and immersive experiences. So it's it's titled in full Goddess, Power, Glamour Rebellion. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the concept and kind of what went into building the show? Because this is the first Melbourne built winter masterpiece at Acme for some time. Yeah. So it's been in the pipeline for a very long time. And I guess when Acme was kicking around the idea of curating a show that celebrated the achievements of women in film, it was happening at the same time that the Me Too movement was going on and women were really demanding to tell their stories. So it felt like it was really appropriate that Acme should lean into that and lead a conversation around the representation of women and the ways in which they have um, taken stands and pushed against stereotypes over the course of film history. The lead curator of the exhibition, Bethan Johnson, has um, produced an exhibition that really tries to tell stories about um, these goddesses. And yes, the, the subtitle is Power, Glamour and Rebellion to try and encapsulate where our emphasis is and really looking at the goddess not just as an object of beauty because that was the way in which the screen goddess has been commodified over the course of film history by studios, certainly in the first instance, but really to 
re-examine them and to credit them with a bit of the complexity and power that um, the stories over the history of film have perhaps denied them. Can you please describe what it's like when you enter the exhibition? Because the soundscape that is described in our story sounds pretty incredible. Mm. And it's a really important way, I think, to ground the exhibition. So as people enter, either down the stairs or via the lift, um, they start to hear voices. And then as they enter the exhibition proper, they're immersed in what has been, it's been wrapped in kind of a a glittery um, wall wrap, but they become immersed in the soundscape, which has been designed by um, Kiara Kickdrum. And the voices are of women across um, film, television, talking about their experiences in the industry. I think it's a really important way to start this exhibition because the exhibition really places them at the centre of their own stories. It sends the message that women need to be heard and not just seen. And it gives them an opportunity to start this exhibition the way we mean it to progress, which is really by um, telling the stories of women through their own words. That's probably a good segue as well to the Marilyn Monroe costume, uh, something that uh, Bethan, the curator, kind of made clear when we we spoke to her was that, you know, Marilyn went head to head with studio bosses. She was not meek. She kind of stood her ground. And uh, that is the way that the exhibition is curated, is to make sure that those stories are told. Well, Marilyn's one of those figures who has become kind of shorthand for a victim in many ways. I mean, she's obviously the epitome of the screen goddess in some ways. She's very beautiful, white, um, and an object that has been fetishized, I guess, in many ways. But the stories that haven't been told about Marilyn are those ones around her own agency and the sort of ways in which she battled with the studio to take control over her career and her representation. Can you just describe that Marilyn Monroe mm. costume for those who might not have seen Some Like It Hot? It is, it's pretty astounding. It's um, designed by the Australian designer Ori Kelly and it was it was a costume that was made to really, um, oh, in some ways it was um, a deliberate provocation, I guess, to the morality codes of the day um, and the Hayes Code, which was very strict around censoring what could and couldn't be seen on screen. And so Ori Kelly cut the dress to the contours of Marilyn's body. So it's, um, yeah, it's a very figure-hugging dress. It's in a, uh, a, well, it's in her sort of flesh tone fabric and sequence. So it gives the effect almost when you're watching the film, it looks like there's a suggestion of nudity about the dress really. And the most beautiful thing about it is um, that there's a tiny little uh, heart-shaped cutout right on her bottom, which um, you can see when you go into the exhibition. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really beautiful piece. I think the Marlene Dietrich tuxedo is another one worth talking about just because of what it represented um, at that moment in time. Can you talk us through, mm. through that one? So Marlene Dietrich brought with her to Hollywood some of that underground subversion from the Berlin nightclub scene. And, you know, she was pretty uh, famous for subverting those prescriptive codes around femininity. She wore trousers on screen, which it feels pretty um, moderate, obviously, by today's standards, but was pretty radical at the time. 
And in Morocco, she has um, an on-screen kiss with another woman, which was also pretty radical. And when you think about it, I mean, that's 1930. So we're getting close to 100 years ago now, terrifyingly, and it still looks really fresh and um, radical now when you look at it. And I think that's another thing that the exhibition does well. It sort of disrupts an idea about history that we might have where you know, there's this linear journey from things that weren't great from the sort of dark ages through to the age of enlightenment. And I think it might be really interesting for people who may not even know about Marlena Dietrich to go, oh my God, that she was doing that mm. in 1930. That's pretty um, amazing, I think. Well, I can't wait to get there. You mentioned it's already been pretty busy and I'm not surprised why it sounds like there's some some pretty rare and beautiful objects and costumes to see, but also some fascinating stories. Goddess runs until October 1 this year, so you have plenty of time to see it. And Broadsheet Access is actually hosting an after-hours look at the exhibition, followed by a goddess-themed dinner at Hero, which is at Acme, with Karen Martini and Philippa Sibley. So go online to check that out if you want to have a very special evening at what is already a very special exhibition. Thank you so much for joining us, Britt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. You can stay completely up to date at any moment of any day at broadsheet.com.au or on Instagram at broadsheet underscore mel. I'll be back again on Monday. Same time, same place. Chat then. A listener production.